the church. And so we continue that today specifically in verses 9 through 14. Today we are going to talk about the will of God for the church. Now, I am not going to give you a specific vision for this specific church. We're going to actually do some of that next Sunday after our worship gathering. We're going to have an opportunity to have a family meeting where we talk a little bit about some of the things that our elders are pursuing and want you to know about and bring you in on that discussion. In particular, as we pivot outward, the first six months or so of our official merger have been an opportunity for us to take the pulse of our people and make sure that we are internally unified and strong, and it is now time for us as a unified body to think outwardly about how we are going to reach this community for the Lord Jesus Christ, and so I invite you to make sure you come next Sunday and stay for our family meeting. Rather than give you something specific today, I want you to look with me into Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, wherein we will find God's will for any church. I'm not sure that I get a question more frequently than the ones that have to do with making choices. How many of you have been at a point in your life where you had two or three seemingly equally good choices to make, and you were confused over which one you should choose. That ever happened to you? I get those questions from people all the time. And so they will sit down with me over coffee or whatever and lay out all of the options and say, what do you think I should do? Which makes me feel really powerful in the moment, right? Because I get to, you know, assert trajectory for the rest of their lives. Do you know what I usually tell them? I usually tell them, choose the one you want. And they look at me quizzically, as though somehow what I've said is blasphemous. Like I should be, you know, putting on a robe and a, and a miter and swinging some incense, and, and then together we like put our fingers and our thumbs together and meditate a little bit, and somehow a bright light flashes and I give them some revelation from heaven. I think that's what they're wanting. I don't possess that kind of wisdom, and I do not possess that kind of power. And then after they give me the quizzical look and I severely disappoint them, we often come to Colossians chapter 1, where I point out to them what God's will clearly is, and then as I will come back to in a little bit, I say to them once again, do what you want. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14 demonstrate to us what God's will clearly is. There is no mystery. You do not need a holy man. You do not need a guru to help you figure out what God wants for your life. He tells us. And what we will find as we explore what God's will is for this church and every church that there is or has ever been is that as the main things are taken care of, our affections, our desires are shaped so that even in the choices that often confound and perplex us, like who should I marry, what job should I take, what city should I live in, 
What schooling choices should I make for my children? How should I spend my money? What do I say yes to in my schedule? And what do I say no to in my schedule? Who should I let my kids hang out with? What activities should I let them be involved in or go to? How should I spend my leisure time? And so forth and so on. My contention today as we look into Colossians chapter 1 is that God lays out for us the big stuff, the clear stuff. And as that stuff is understood and pursued, our desires, our affections are shaped in such a fashion that the things that we think are the big things sort of fade a bit into the background, and then when we do face them, we have enough wisdom and conviction and confidence to make those choices too. So our goal today in looking into Colossians chapter 1 verses 9 through 14 is to reveal, or God to reveal to us, what His real will really is. And I hope that in so doing, we come away with some conviction about what that is, with some confidence that we can walk by faith here in this life. We saw last week in verses 5 through 8, just put the outline briefly back in front of you for the sake of context, that the gospel is God's powerful commitment to fulfill His promises to us. Firstly, it transforms as it is made known and taken up by faith. Our contention last week is that far too often we see the gospel merely as a gateway, an initiation into the family of God, and we fail to appreciate that it's also the pathway, that the same power that God used to raise Christ from the dead transforms us and justifies us, but it does more than that. It enables us, it empowers us every day to live out the calling that He has put in front of us. In other words, you need the gospel every single day. The gospel is God's power to justify, initially save us, and to sanctify, to continue to save us. And as Paul told the Colossian believers The gospel was spreading all around the world and bearing fruit, and it was doing so in them as well, continually. As I joked with you last week, reminded you of what Luther's parishioner once asked him, Pastor, why do you keep teaching us the gospel? In other words, we know it. Move on to something else. He said to them, I keep teaching you the gospel because you forget it. So Paul wanted to remind the Colossian believers that the gospel was not just gateway, it was pathway, and it transforms as is known and taken up by faith. And then secondly, in verses 7 through 8, the gospel transforms our very desires and actions. This had happened in people like Epaphras and the Colossian church as a whole, former pagans given over to worshiping false gods, now from the heart had believed the gospel and were never the same again. 
Epaphras gave his very life, imprisoned alongside Paul for the sake of the gospel. That kind of transformation, that kind of conversion does not happen by happenstance. God did that through the gospel. And in fact, it happened in the Colossians as a whole, for Paul commends them, though he has never met them in verse 8, for their love in the Spirit. This is what marked them. And how had that come about? It had come about by the powerful pathway of the gospel. So we find ourselves now in verses 9 through 14. Paul has said in verse 3 that he prays for them, prays for people he doesn't even know personally. And now again in our section for today, beginning in verse 9, he reminds them that he prays for them. In verses 3 through 8, he shows how he thanks God for them, what he is thankful for. And now in verses 9 through 14, he reveals to them not thanksgiving, but he reveals to them what he prays for on their behalf. So verses 3 through 8 are a prayer of thanksgiving. Verses 9 through 14 are a prayer of, of petition. Now, it would be tempting for us to look at Colossians 1, 3 through 14 and say, this is how we should pray. And that is true. This section and its message for us is not less than that. If you struggle sometimes mindlessly through prayer, Colossians 1, 3 through 14 could be a template for your prayers. But it is more than that. For in it, as I have already hinted at, God reveals to us through Paul's pen his will for the church. So I invite you to read along silently while I read God's word aloud, Colossians 1, 9-14. And so from the day we heard, heard about their faith, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Pretend like there's a colon there. What is God's will? He outlines it beginning in verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. May God bless to us the reading of his word. As we have outlined over the past couple of weeks, Paul wrote this letter to the Colossian church because influences were creeping in, trying to convince these believers, these people who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, that they needed something else if they were going to find fulfillment and satisfaction. And Paul, with passion, and clarity writes to this church and makes it very clear to them that they need nothing else. 
In Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul says about Jesus, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If all the fullness of God resides in Jesus, why would we look for fulfillment anywhere else? He will go on to say in chapter 2, verse 9, For in Him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Then in verse 10, And you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So consider Paul's logic. If all the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus Christ, and we have been filled in Him, the question which was being posed to the Colossian church, that question being, do you have all you need? Let us offer you something else in addition to Christ. And so we pose that question this morning. And frankly, whether we realize it or not, that question is being posed all of the time to us. This question for our consideration, what do we need beside Jesus? If the fullness of God dwells in Him and we've been filled in Him, what do we need beside Him? And the answer is nothing. Because, my friends, that question is being posed to us all the time. Because there's messiahs masquerading in our midst constantly. We need money to live, right? Yes, we do. Got to pay your bills. But money can masquerade as a messiah, right? It is nice to be well and healthy, but good health is not our hope, right? Family is good, maybe the best gift we can have. Friends are wonderful, supporting us perhaps when even our families would cast us aside. Moms and dads, children, and the best friends who offer us the most meaningful community, they're not our Messiah, right? You see, all the time, in these ways and more, the question is being posed to us, what do you need beside me? As though Jesus is saying it to us directly. And the answer we must keep coming back to is nothing, Lord. We have all we need in you. Because Paul wants to establish this and the hearts and minds of these Colossian believers, and we want to do the same today, we have to ask ourselves, if Christ is the fullness of God and we've been filled in Him, how do we walk alongside Him? How do we, how do we go about this pilgrimage here in this world that is often so confusing, offering us false hope? And I believe Colossians 1 verses 9 through 14 answers that so, God's will for our church, and any church, is this, that we will worship Him in all of life. That's His will for us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that whether we eat or drink 
or whatever we do, we are to do it all for the glory of God. So I ask you, my friends, what is outside the bounds of worshiping God? And the answer again is nothing. The way I love or fail to love my wife is an act of worship. The way I direct and shepherd the hearts of my children is an act of worship. The way I purpose to spend my resources of of money and scheduled time is an act of worship. And so, another question that we have to be asking ourselves all the time is this, why did God save us in Christ? Why? If your answer is so we can go to heaven, if your answer is to complete himself, you are missing the point. Why did God send Christ to save us? God sent His Son to save us so that we would worship Him in all of life. Everything counts. And let me just say this to you. You can't help but worship. You made a practical, tangible decision today to come here to worship the one true God. But, but we're doing that all the time. So a question that we must be constantly posing to ourselves individually and corporately as a church family is this. What is God's will for us? And His will for us is that we will worship Him in all of life. But because that feels a little bit intangible, because that feels a little bit vague, Paul tells us what that should look like. Middle of verse 10, the first clarification as to what real worship, real everyday worship looks like is that it should be marked by good works. So Paul prays and doesn't cease to pray that they would know the will of God. In verse 10, the will of God is that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's worship. What's that worship going to look like? The next phrase tells us they are, we are, to be bearing fruit and every good work. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to John 15. This famous passage in John's gospel, wherein Jesus, right before his arrest and crucifixion, teaches his disciples that though he is going to go away, they must depend upon him. You know this passage well. Jesus did not just speak these words in a vacuum. This arises from the indictment of the prophets upon the people of Israel, for God had made every possible arrangement for them that they would bear fruit for Him. They were His chosen people. But by and large, in Israel's history, had they borne fruit for Him faithfully? The answer is no. But Jesus comes to the disciples who will plant churches all over the known world and says to them, I want you to bear fruit, and here's how you're going to do it. He says in John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Notice verse 4, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, verse 5, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me 
you can do nothing. Good fruit that is called for is provided for. This goes back to our sermon from last week. The gospel is not just a gateway, an initiation into a relationship with God. It provides the power wherein we live for Him. This is why the gospel is much better news than we realize. We tend to stop at conversion or justification. I have been converted from an old way of living to a new way of living. Or I was under indictment, I was condemned, and now I've been declared not guilty. That's justification. And the gospel is not less than that, but the gospel is more than that. The good news is that we have not only been justified, we have been provided for so that God's purpose in our salvation, which is the restoration of worship, will be brought to pass, not just potentially, but definitely. And so I say to you, my friends, the gospel is better news than we know. Find yourself frustrated today. Find it so very difficult to obey God. To the point that perhaps even the word obedience feels a little bit like a bad word to you. Friends, the gospel is better news than we know. Are you struggling to love your spouse? To faithfully shepherd your children? To make good decisions with your time and your money and the rest of your resources? To to use your body? To think thoughts that are holy? Far too often it is because we are trusting ourselves and not trusting not only the one who justifies us, but is the source of all good things. So what does it look like to worship God? God's purpose in our salvation, to walk in a manner pleasing to Him. What does it look like? That we will bear fruit in every good work. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that we are saved by grace through faith so that we will not boast or brag. But he goes on to say that good works have been prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And far too often in the Western church, we have two classifications of Christians. The general category, you might call this the infantry, the, the bulk of the, of the church. But then there's like this little band of people, maybe we'll call them Delta Force or the Army Rangers or the Navy SEALs, and they're the ones who really take it seriously. Like they can hold their breath underwater for five minutes. They can be shot nine times in the kneecap and still keep on fighting Al-Qaeda. And we think of these people, the few, the few that really give themselves over to Jesus. They worship with the body consistently. They read their Bibles. They they pray. They give their money to poor people. They use their time doing things that that maybe aren't always fun. They, They serve in obscurity. They love people. They forgive quickly. They pursue humility. They repent willingly. And they talk about God a lot. They're the crazy Navy SEAL Christians. Far too often in our evangelical culture, we allow this distinction to go on. There's a general group of Christians who who are going to squeak into the kingdom because they've somehow prayed some prayer at some point, and they have the right confession, 
But this other group, these ones who are crazy for Jesus, they're the ones who take their faith seriously. My friends, the Scriptures do not allow us to make this distinction. Every Christian should be a person who treasures God above all and orders their life in such a fashion that they're marked by good works. God's will for us is that we will walk in a manner worthy of Him, that we'll worship Him, and that first of all, this is characterized by good works. The next thing that Paul says here in Colossians chapter 1 is that God's will for us and our worship of Him is that we will treasure and fear Him above all. You see this at the end of verse 10. Not only are we to bear fruit in every good work, that's the first clarification as to what worship looks like, but also, secondly, our worship should be characterized by treasuring and fearing Him above all else. You'll notice that Paul says there that we are to be increasing in the knowledge of God. That would be easy to just say, well, this means we should read our Bibles more. And again, it is not less than that. But for what purpose, I would ask you? We don't worship the Scriptures, right? The Scriptures are not our God. I know a lot of Christians that after I've been around them for some time, I've thought that. They're more enamored with truth about God than God Himself. That is not what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying here is that we are to know God Himself so that we might treasure Him supremely above all other things and fear Him or reverence Him. What Jesus is saying in John chapter 17 where He says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It has been said by a well-known theologian that a lot of us would be very content to go to heaven whether or not God was there. This is why very often vacations or the long vacation that we call retirement. Now, I know I just made a lot of you mad because I hear consistently from those of you who are retired that you've never been busier. But isn't isn't the American dream where we maybe take a week or two off a year and go on vacation, or maybe once we turn 65 and, and retire and then take maybe more vacations, that, that that offers out to us some sort of semblance of heaven? But it probably shows that we don't really understand what heaven, or better said, the eternal state, where God will refashion the earth and we will dwell with Him forever, that we have the wrong perspective. You know the best part about the eternal state? It's not going to be clusters of grapes that never run out and streams that offer us tranquility and lack of war and so forth. It isn't just that we won't have tears anymore, that there'll be no more night. The best part about eternity is that we get God back in But you see, that's already begun. Eternal life has been initiated, and it is characterized by knowing God, by treasuring Him and fearing Him above all else. And so we have to be constantly on guard. 
because all the things out there that are clamoring for our attention, that are masquerading as our Messiah, they cannot satisfy you, my friends. But how often do we give in? How easily are we duped? Good. Relationships are wonderful. Leisure is enjoyable. But not one of those things and countless other things that we could enumerate can come close to satisfying us like God can. Say to the younger folks that are in us and among us today, they're like teenagers and below. We want to tell you and we want to show you by our own convictions and what we treasure that Jesus is the best. Parents, Grandparents and aunts and uncles and friends, we have a responsibility and an obligation to proclaim to our children with our lips and with our lives that nothing else measures up. Are we? God's will for us is that we'll worship Him in all of life. Worship should be marked by good works. It should be marked by treasuring Him and fearing Him above all else. And thirdly, it should be marked by persevering through hardship with joy. This is what verse 11 is telling us. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord will be characterized, verse 11, by being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. This life is hard, right? It's hard. Why Paul says to us in Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Those of us who look forward to glory, to full restoration, must walk the road of hardship. Just the way life is. For Paul will go on later on in Romans chapter 8 to say that all creation and we ourselves are groaning because of the fallenness all around us. But brokenness and fallenness will not have the final word. The Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, and after you have suffered a little while, although it doesn't feel like a little while, right? After you have suffered a little while, the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, he's putting his signature on this, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. My friends, this life is hard. And this is one of the great arguments for intimate connection to your church. We cannot go this alone. Lone Rangers... Those who live on the periphery of the herd, they're the ones in danger. You must be known. So let us know you. Let us know each other. So that when the hardship comes, because inevitably it will, put whatever label you want on it, cancer, poverty, Abandonment, joblessness, despair, political upheaval, and so forth and so on. We 
are not exempt from these things. In fact, Paul will go on even further in Romans chapter 8 to say that we are like sheep led to the slaughter. We are not exempted from hardship. In fact, doesn't it sometimes seem that as the people of God, we suffer even more than the world around us? Because we're going against the flow. Yet, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 11 that we should endure with patience, knowing that in the grand scheme of things, our suffering will just last a little while. But notice this qualifier at the end of Colossians 1.11. With what? With joy. Not just grinning and bearing it, which means we're really not grinning. Not just suffering under, but with joy, with settled hope, believing that God will fulfill all of His promises to us. There's a fourth thing that Paul says clarifies what worship is to look like, and that's in verse 12. Worship is to be marked by good works, by treasuring and fearing Him above all else, and by persevering through hardship with joy. And lastly, verse 12, our worship should be characterized by, by a filling, that we should be filled with gratitude, humility, and optimism. Here to give thanks to the Father, that's gratitude, who has qualified us. We didn't merit it ourselves. This is humility. To share in the inheritance of the saints and light. We should be the most optimistic people out there. What is the last thing that should characterize our worship? God's will for us, the church. We should be marked by, filled with gratitude, humility, and optimism. Are you a complainer? I'm a complainer sometimes. I hate that about myself. Are you a cynic? You might call yourself just a realist, but in some ways you're just kind of a jerk, probably. And again, I'm pointing that back at myself, lest you think I'm indicting you. Shouldn't we be the most grateful, humble, and optimistic people out there? Why is it so often that people in Christ's church are marked by the opposite? Complaint, pride, and pessimism. If that marks you, you do not understand the gospel at all. Which is why we come back together as the body of Christ, right? To address our sin, sins like thanklessness, pride, and pessimism. Take fresh looks at the gospel of Jesus so that we might be transformed into grateful, humble, and optimistic people. That should mark us. And to finalize and fill out our look at this section, Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. How is all this possible? How is it possible that these things, these, these markers of worship can be ours? Look with me, if you don't mind, in Ephesians chapter 1. We'll do this briefly. Three times in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul promises the Ephesian church that they have an inheritance. Look at verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. In verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance 
And so we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And then one more time in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That's what verses 13 and 14 are about. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How do we know that the inheritance at the end of Colossians verse, uh, verse 12, chapter 1 verse 12, how do we know that that inheritance is ours, that it's unshakable and that it can't be taken away? Because God himself ensures our transfer from a former kingdom of despair to now a kingdom of hope. And redemption has taken place. And what is redemption? It's deliverance from sin. Colossians 1, 9 through 12 are grounded in the promises of Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. The gospel, just like last week, is not just gateway, it's not just initiation. It is pathway. It is continuing and enabling grace. So the call in verses 9 through 12 are enabled by the promises of verses 13 and 14. Why in 1 Peter chapter 1, the apostle can say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are called to real markers of worship. Thirteen and fourteen, that the call will be enabled. Why are we here today? We're not here because we're more moral than our neighbors. We are not here today because we're more clever than them. We're not here today because we are better than them. We are here today because of sheer grace. So I say to you, my friends, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness, a kingdom of despair. Firstly, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son and the promise of redemption, of being bought back, of being delivered, of being secured to God by God has been taken care of. So, what is God's will for the church? God's will for the church, for us collectively, made up of individuals, is that we worship God with all that we are. We are not left alone. This is not a call to just more morality or personal discipline. This is a call to trust what has been granted to us in the gospel, a message that is far better than we realize, and we are to do that together. So may this church, may our church know the will of God, that we will walk in a manner worthy of Him, that we will worship him, in other words, in all of life, enabled by the gospel. May God be pleased to accomplish all of this in us. Lord Jesus, now by your spirit, we pray that you will take these 
holy words that you have left for us, inspired by your Spirit, and that you will implant them deeply in our minds and hearts, and they will accomplish the purpose for which you have sent them. Renewed in the spirit of our minds, that we will be encouraged and enabled in our hearts and in our volitional will, and that we would not be the same, that you would transform us by a degree. May we worship you with all that we are, and may we believe that in so doing, we will find our greatest joy. Help us to be convinced by your Spirit through your Word, and help us to convince each other.